Thank you, Alex. Big blessing picking the hymns that he picks every week and uh, just such a joy to sing them. And we're going to talk about grace today, and Alex didn't know that, and yet he, a number of the songs he picked helped us be reminded, and I'm so grateful that the Holy Spirit works that way. And for Jason, uh, just, uh, and I know this, you know, as we pray early in the morning with the band before you guys get here, our desire really is to um, be invisible. We want to come and worship the Lord like you do, and so we know that we can't lead that way unless we're also desiring very much to come into fellowship and worship. Worship is not about um, an atmosphere. It's not about cool clothes and, uh, and uh, the band that looks cool. Worship is an attitude that comes in the heart of the worshiper. It has to do with coming before the Lord in humility, recognizing our own position before him, and then lifting up worship. You know, all through the ages, people have worshiped the Lord in the beginnings of the services in all kinds of different ways. With just as intense worship uh, as it is now if the worshiper had the right heart. And I also appreciated Jason's, um, his passage he picked today, came and preached peace to those who were far off and those who were near. And unless you have Jewish background, beloved, you're part of the first one. Get peace preach to you when you were far off and that brought you near it's a blessing to uh, come and be prepared to be in the word of God as you think about those kinds of things and have then a heart that can that can move into that uh, worship time God's plan for a healthy church a study through the books of first and second Corinthians is our study spiritual warfare walking the hard road God's purposes and difficulty and we're back today we've been off a week uh, we were last week together with our men and some uh, at our annual camp out. About 30 of us were out there for about three or four days. We had a great time and a great time around the word with Eli as we uh, worshiped on Sunday out around a campfire. Special thank you to Ben for filling in here. And, of course, it's always a blessing to have another uh, elder come in and speak, and then you be blessed and encouraged. And so it's a blessing to have that uh, opportunity here. And so we're back in our verse-by-verse study through this wonderful letter. It's part of a long, extended study through First and Second Corinthians, and we're pushing our way to the end, and all God's people said, amen. And so it's been impactful for me personally, and I hope it has been for you, even more so lately, as we've been working our way through this section that has to do with spiritual warfare and of having to walk a hard road uh, with an understanding of God pur- God's purposes and difficulty. The hard road we've seen may have to do with difficult people, may have to do with being rejected, it may have to do with physical suffering, challenging ministry, a number of other things. But in our study, we, we see that Paul's ministry to the Corinthian church was a difficult time for him. There's no way you can read through these two letters and not see that with all the pain that goes along with it. And we have marked his character traits as we worked our way through because I think that's instructive for us and why the board says what it says and why it's recorded for us. So what does the word say? What does it mean by what it says? How does that apply to me? We understand Paul's as we've marked Paul's character traits, those are character traits we too have to model, and, and those things are given to us so we can understand God's purposes for Paul, of course, and he would never want the recognition or anything that would come and be displayed uh, as somehow he is the most important. He had humility all throughout the letter, but it's helped us, I think, to learn from his example and see uh, what God wants his children to learn through hardship. And we have seen really how it is very hard to determine why suffering and difficulty occurs in someone's life. And, and that really isn't necessarily what the Lord wants us to take away from difficulty. I think we've seen that. Not that we automatically can tell why someone's having a hard time or why a hard time has occurred and never ends or whatever it might be. But just that he has purposes in that difficulty. And that's the important thing I think that we need to move our way through. And last time we saw some biblical examples from this passage, as with others we've looked at. It's very important because the trouble comes from all different directions. And uh, in a fallen world that groans and can cause us trouble, even trouble in our own physical bodies, we groan under the weight of the curse in our own bodies that are, are, are having some trouble and, and are uh, struggling. We, we also have trouble with results of sin in our own body. Trouble can come because we made bad choices. Uh, we made sinful choices, and then there are repercussions from that, and that can be some of the trouble we can see. Uh, trouble comes uh, as a result of being a minister, certainly in a church, and that's Paul's issue here. And trouble can come from... Uh, the plane that's hidden from our eyes, the spirit realm, and we're going to see that really applies to our passage. Uh, trouble can come from the Lord's chastening. We see that all through the scriptures, that if we're wa- not walking in obedience to the word of God, difficult times can come on us, and he, it's because he loves us. 
trouble can come in order to show God's power. We saw a number of examples of that in the Word of God. Simply, you have trouble so that the Lord, when He delivers you out of it, shows His power. Uh, trouble can come in order to prove a divine point. That certainly is the issue with Job. Job had no idea that he was being used as an example. And trouble came to Job, and he didn't ever understand why it came. But the Lord was making a point that even though Job would lose everything, he still wouldn't deny the Lord. And so, and here in Job, God uses uh, Satan and his demons to accomplish that, which connects us to our passage. Now, last time we got our first look at uh, our passage, 2 Corinthians 12, 7. So look there if you would. And Paul says this, he says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh. And we looked at all that surpassing greatness of the revelation. Paul got to go and be with the Lord in heaven temporarily. It was the first time he revealed this to the church. He'd been holding this as a secret for about 14 years. He wasn't trying to brag. He was just telling them this is what happened. And he was using it as an illustration. And, and with the passage, we begin to understand the reason for Paul's suffering and his difficulty. God had a purpose in it because when it says it was given me, uh, the only way we can understand that is to say that God allowed that to happen. It can't mean anything else. And he said it was, and he described it as, a thorn in the flesh, which is, as we saw last time, not the thorns that we would be associating with working in the garden or perhaps out in the woods, but a stake, a sharpened uh, uh, point, a, a, a piece of wood, something like that. And we looked at all that, uh, the word background there. And he doesn't really say what the affliction was. And I think it's reasonable to think uh, that that's not the intent for us to know that. As I told you before, most commentaries maybe have about 10 to 12 different options for physical problems, which I don't think is what the Lord wants. And I think the more we go in that direction, the less likely it's any of them. I think uh, most importantly, as we said before, it's trouble. We understand it was difficulty. It could be used, as we saw the word metaphorically, it could just be referring to the pain and its effect on him from whatever it was. It was like being impaled on a sharpened stake and he couldn't get away. And it could be referring to the whole situation with the Corinthian church. Certainly that would, would certainly fit. The false apostles deceived people, personal attacks on him from people he loved so much, and that could be the immobilizing effect of that. Either way, it was devastating to him physically and emotionally, and I think that we saw that clearly enough. And he calls it a thorn in the flesh, and we certainly know that flesh can refer to the physical body uh, of us, but it also can, as Galatians 5.16 says, refer to our unredeemed humanness, and so we understand that stake then is in the flesh. That's all of its sinful desires. And the understanding there would be all the predispositions that are sinful that become the beachhead for temptation in your life and in mine. And Paul, like you and me, had natural human desires and natural appetites. And so uh, the Lord was perhaps using this tremendous suffering to literally stab his otherwise proud flesh. We can understand it that way. So either way, physical pain was involved. But you and I both know that it doesn't have to be an illness because we've all been betrayed by people. We've all been gossiped about. We've all been insulted. We've all been ridiculed. Enough to know that physical pain is part of that, sometimes worse because it's that way than it could be even with a broken bone or some, some hardship we have in our own body. And we saw from Galatians 4, you know, people always say, well, it's got to be some physical ailment. But as I, I as illustrated there, Paul was laid over in Galatia because he was having trouble with his eyes. And he talked to the church in Galatia and says, listen, you received me as a saint from the Lord. You, you treated me at Christ himself and, and ministered to my illness. And so we see that it was a temporary setback. So I think to say that uh, Paul had some physical illness that was so difficult uh, that he couldn't do anything would be wrong because otherwise, if you go to 2 Corinthians 11 and you pick up in verse 23 and those next 10 verses, there'd be no way he could travel the miles and do the things that he did if he had some physical ailment that would actually made him uh, an invalid. So we can leave the thorn in the flesh in the general classification of trouble and intense difficulty, and I think that's precisely where uh, the Lord wants that. And then we see in verse 7, it says he's a, messen a messenger of Satan. And that's where it got interesting, it's where we left off last time. And the word messenger in the Greek is the word agalos, which is where we get the word angel in English. So this has to do with a demon. How do we know that? Well, it's a messenger of Satan. So it always refers to a personal being in the Word of God. It could refer to a human being. Because we see in Revelation 2 and 3 uh, that it refers to a human being. The leaders of the church are referred that way. Uh, it, um, it might also refer to an angelic being, and certainly it could refer that. In this case, it's an angel, but not from God, but from Satan. And we saw again, so this trouble is a trouble from the spirit realm. And we see that as we looked at Job chapter 1, verse 7, 
And you can read about that yourselves again if you missed that. We can see that not only did Job have to deal with all the pain and the sorrow and the difficulty that he had to deal with from the torment that the, that the spirit realm uh, pushed on him, but he also had to deal with the annoyance and the grief of people giving him solutions that weren't correct, which is one of the reasons why I, I warned you that it's not always easy to determine why people are having hard times. It's not always clear. Sometimes you can ask some questions, and if a person's walking in sinfulness, obviously, that might be chastening from the Lord if they're born again, but it's very hard to determine that, and, and Job's, Job's friends didn't do it well at all. In fact, we're giving that commentary so we'll know what not to do, but he had that annoyance. He had to put up with all of that, but unlike Paul, Job didn't know why he was suffering. Paul does, and, and all the counsel and the criticism he received, Job received, was folly. And even in the midst of all that, he never wavered in his faith. And when it was all over, it was all done. All he said was, remember this at the end of Job, Lord, before all this happened, I heard of you with the hearing of my ear. Now my eyes see you. I repent in dust and ashes. What did Job learn? He didn't know he was, a, he was the point, making a divine point. He didn't know the Lord was saying, consider my, my servant Job. Uh, he's upright in all everything he does. And Satan goes, well, of course he is because you've blessed him. But if you take away everything he has, he, he'll curse you. And the Lord says, no, I don't think so. Go ahead. So Job never knew the answer, but he found that in the end of the hardship that he went through, it was a spiritual high point of his life. And, and there are a number of other examples we looked at from ancient Israel to Job, of course, to Peter, whom Jesus told Peter, Satan wants to sift you, as I told you last time. And Peter probably said, you said no, right? And, and the Lord didn't say no. And he said, but when you return, encourage your brothers. So we know that happened. During the tribulation period, we know fallen angels are going to bring difficult times on the earth for, for accomplishing God's purposes. So all that kind of stuff is part of what we see in the scripture. So it's a very common thing that happens, trouble from the spirit realm. And, and that is obviously what we see in 2 Corinthians. God has allowed a demon to, Paul says, torment me. And we've seen that there are times when God releases Satan to do his own work in the life of his own people. And there are times when God allows demons to go in and tear up the things that we're endeavoring to do because he has a purpose that only can be accomplished by that. And that might be what the issue is here. And, and from, again, from the words was given to me, it's important to understand that God has given this trial, this trouble, this difficulty to the Apostle Paul. The assault from the demon through the false teachers or on Paul physically, which resulted in physical pain and suffering, was from God. God had, in other words, opened the way to the demonic assault. And God allowed Paul to be hit where it did the most good. And, and I think just in general in the, in the church today, if, if you just think about the preaching that you hear, today people think the only thing God does is send a good angel and good experiences and comfortable things and prosperity. See, that's what gets talked about a lot. God does that. And that's just not true. That's not the only thing God does. God will even, as we understand this, use the kingdom of darkness. He'll use demons. He'll even use Satan himself if he needs to to accomplish his purposes. So Paul's suffering has been intense. It continues unabated. In fact, it says torment is a present active subjunctive, kolophidzo, literally beating with the fist. Some of your translations may say buffet. That's a pretty good understanding. A constant buffeting, many blows. So the indication is plain. Paul was being buffeted by a demon to keep his pride in check. And no doubt there are limits to what the demon could do, and we see that from Job for sure, and we see that from Peter. Uh, there's limits. They can't just do whatever they want. If, you're, if you belong to the Lord and you're redeemed, then you're protected by him, and he allows things to come into your life that are under his sovereignty and his control. And Paul realizes God's allowed it, and, and maybe it's the continually stirring up of trouble inside the church, which Paul is powerless to do anything about. As much as he labored, he realized he couldn't fix the problems that were in Corinth. Maybe it was something else. Uh, Paul knows it's from the Lord, and he knows this because he says in verse 8, look there, concerning this, he says, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. So obviously, Paul did not enjoy the beating he was taking. But um, mark this. It doesn't say that he went out and commanded the demon. It doesn't say that he used his authority in Christ to bring it into subjection that we see foolishly taught in so many churches. And this seems to be very, very popular nowadays. And people just come a, kind of wade in, chasing around demons, commanding them in Jesus' name to do this or that, praying... This is very, very popular. Praying through buildings to kick out the demons. And as I told you last week, uh, two weeks ago, you know, 
that's, that's a foolish thing to think about. We don't understand the demon world. We don't understand how much power they have. We don't understand when their own element, what they're allowed to do. We don't understand anything about that, how they influence governments and how they influence history. But we've got people who, oh, we're going to kick out the demons. All foolish fabrications in today's market, false theology and false claims of false teachers with no biblical authority and market no biblical precedence for any of that. People running around binding Satan here and binding demons there unsuccessfully, I might add, because it's an illusion. And, and beloved, if you think about this, it might be that if they could do that, which they can't, they might be interrupting the work that God, who for his own purposes, allows Satan access to his own, such as Job and Peter and Paul and ancient Israel, and during the future tribulation time, and any number of situations of which we have no information, if they could just bind them and kick them out and take authority over them, which they can't, they might be interrupting the very work that God wants to do in the hearts of people and in the lives of people and in ministries and in situations, see? And so it, it comes in conflict with what we understand about this, plus it's just an illusion that somehow people have authority over all of that, okay? There's no biblical, uh, no biblical precedent for any of that. So what did Paul do? says it's a messenger of Satan to buffet me, to beat me constantly. Did he try to bind Satan? Nope. Paul did none of that. Even though he was a true apostle, and we saw it, the last apostle, there's no other apostles after Paul, and who certainly could be argued had that sign gift, as the other apostles did have that sign gift during that time, the miracle sign gift. What did Paul do? Well, verse 8, concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And so, where did he go? He went to the Lord, didn't he? And perhaps I would propose to you, do you think that might have been the purpose? Or one of the purposes, as Paul was able to go and be with the Lord temporarily in his garden and walk with the king, if you will, as we looked at all that background of that passage? Might have been the purpose, bring Paul to a place of humility. We know that probably happened shortly after he got back from heaven. This difficult time began on Paul to keep him humble. And so for 14 years, he'd been, he's been struggling with this so that the Lord could keep Paul where he wants him. And that's the right response. You know, and again, we, we've said this before. Did he call Timothy or Titus or one of the other apostles? You know, come over and cast this demon out of me. Take authority of this demon in my life so I can be free to do the ministry I want to do. Did he call them? No, and, and beloved, that gives us a, a little clue as to the habit of the apostles. Even though they had exercised a sign gift, they didn't run around chasing demons. Any more than, you know, when, when Timothy was having trouble with his stomach, did Paul say, hey, go find a healer in the church, he'll fix you up. No, because we were moving out of that time of sign gifts. Why? Because sign gifts were given to verify the message or the messenger. We'd moved out of that time. Now we're in faith, hope, and love, right? And that's the, we're continuing forward in that. We don't have to verify any of this anymore. So Paul's not saying, hey, go find a healer, go, you know, Come cast this demon out of me, right? None of that's going on. He didn't run around chasing demons. Paul knew it was a demon at work because the Lord had told him that's what it was. And even though he knew the source, he didn't go to his friends. He didn't go to somebody with earthly formulas. You know, he didn't go to therapy to fix his pain. He didn't look for some technique. He wasn't after some human wisdom, see? He asked the Lord to take it away, and what was the Lord's answer? The Lord made it clear. The chastening was from him that it was for Paul's good. He wasn't going to take it away. And it had perhaps been going on since his trip to heaven. And God's purposes would prevail in Paul's ministry. So the honor God has bestowed on him with his trip to heaven has come with it humiliation, as we've seen, and the appearance of weakness and ridiculousness as he relates the whole thing to the church. He doesn't know if he was there in his body or just in his spirit. His body was on the earth. And you can just kind of hear the false teachers just making fun of him. You don't even know what happened, Paul. You don't know if you were awake, if you were asleep. I mean, how, I mean this, is, this is so weak. So Paul understood this, see. Backbiting, gossip, rejection from the church he loved so much, ridicule, false teachers leading the church captive. All those were constant blows he received, and maybe it was something else. But just like Job, it was immobilizing, it was discouraging, it was disheartening, and, and, and power, he was powerless to be delivered from it. And so we saw that God has his purposes in our difficulty. We've gone through these. If you missed any of these, I would encourage you to go back and look at them. He, we, we know that God has purposes and difficulties so that he can comfort us, 2 Corinthians 2, that we become, become a comforter of other people. So as we were comforted by the Lord, we can comfort somebody else. We know that difficult times come so we can learn how to comfort somebody else. 
We know that difficult times come so we can test our faith and we'll have endurance. And that produces a complete believer he can use. We saw that in Romans chapter 5. And that we can be made out of the right stuff, have proven character and hope, looking forward to his return, and that's going to salt everything that we do. When you go through a difficult time and you come out on the other side, you have hope for the future, right? Especially if you don't get to come out on the other side. It's a continued hardship, and you're never going to be released from it. That develops, that's supposed to develop what? A hope for the future. And then everything else you do is salted by that hope. You're not invested here, you're invested there. He sometimes gives us difficult times so we can be corrected and walk in righteousness because he loves us. and He doesn't want us to keep going down a path of disobedience to his word. And so if we're truly redeemed, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says, sometimes he'll make difficult times come, and in that difficult time we can rejoice in the fact that the Lord loves us and counts us as his children. Sometimes he gets us through difficult times so he can put his power on display, and we saw with Job to prove a divine point. And we don't know. And you can review all those scriptures if you need to. In the Second Corinthians 12, 9, he says, He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. And so we added that to our understanding of difficult times. What is it? God allows difficult times in order to teach his children to rely on his grace and to have real spiritual power. And he had to bring Paul through that difficult thing and keep that buffeting going on so Paul could learn that lesson and we understand that is instructional for us too. So he says, my grace is sufficient. It's a wonderful phrase, isn't it? And as I was um, studying this week, I just, I got to that point, I just, I stopped and just kind of had to thank the Lord for that. We, we overlook those types of passages and their impact on Paul and on us. And the word sufficient, present active indicative, primary verb okeo. And as I looked back at the, at the background of the word, it's translated three times in the New Testament. Glorious, it's kind of glorious twice. And um, the background of the word, though, is for raising up a barrier. So its primary, uh, its primary involvement with ancient languages, in fact, it's a barrier, something that's sufficient to do the job of defending or repelling an attack to provide the support. Here it is, to provide the support that's needed. And I thought that was very important. When, and when we, use, when we use the word sufficient in the English language, we might say, you know, we, um, uh, we have sufficient food. What's that mean? Well, we'll have enough to get through the month, right? Sufficient tends to be on the backside of it, not that we have way more, right? But we have sufficient, or we have sufficient money to get through the month. It just means that, you know, it's tight, but it'll cover. And, but that's not how the scripture uses the word. And I think that's important for us to, to point that out. Um, God says, my grace is sufficient for you. And the resource is out of God's provision. It's a rampart laid up, which is sufficient to support us. And that's a cool use here. And, and God said to Paul, I think we can put it this way. My grace is more than strong enough to keep you, if we understand the word. It's strong enough to protect you, to empower you through this difficulty. That's the understanding. And, of course, that throws the light on this marvelous word, Grace. And this is, a, this is a wonderful Greek word. It's used 155 times in the New Testament. And the Greek word is the Greek word charis, and you know this. But um, it basically means a favor granted or a gift given. That is the normal, ordinary meaning. And grace starts in a very general sense, doesn't it? Sometimes it's just called common grace. We've talked about this before. Common grace, that's things God gives to men, both the just and the unjust, relatively good and relatively bad, and I say that because everybody's bad, right? But some people, relative to bad people, are relatively good. So I'll just say, in general, common grace falls on everyone, regardless of what their orientation is. What kind of things is that? Well, the rain that falls, right? The relatively bad farmer and the relatively good farmer get the same amount of rain, they're living next to each other. God gives that, that's common grace. God gives us life and breath, that's common grace. You take another breath, you're unredeemed, you get to take it, you, you curse God, and you take another breath, what is that? That's common grace, because God has a right to take your life, doesn't he? If you cursed him to his face, doesn't he have the right to take your life? We've seen that happen in the Old Testament, did we not? You offend the Lord, and he can take your life, but the Lord doesn't. He gives common grace. Marriage and family, people who are unredeemed enjoy the blessings of marriage, don't they? And they enjoy the blessings of family, and children, and grandchildren, that's called common grace. God gives those things to everyone. The joys of life, 
the beauty of creation. You can walk and, you know, unredeemed people can take a vacation and they can go to Colorado and they can, they can go to uh, Pagosa Springs and look around and see Garden of the Gods and all that and just think, wow, right? Sure, that's common grace. God gives all of that to people. You can walk out and see a beautiful sunset. That's common grace. How about this? Humid, human advancements that come through the unredeemed. Some medical procedure, some, some invention, whatever comes from an unredeemed p- a person, but it makes life better. What is that? That's common grace. God gives that to people. It can enrich anyone. It's part of the goodness of God. That's common grace. And then grace is, reaches this completely different and wonderful proportion when it saves us, right? And we go from common grace to what we call special grace. The uncommon grace of salvation. That's marvelous, isn't it? That's a whole different kind of grace. And we are given salvation and forgiveness of our sins. All the blessings that are God's and the heavenlies are bestowed upon us and held for us. And that goes on then through sanctification and on through glorification, doesn't it? God is generous to undeserving, unworthy sinners, which is the classification of everyone in the world, isn't it? Everyone comes into the world under the headship of Adam all lost, we're all dead in our transgressions and sins, and God in his great mercy comes and saves us by his grace. That's God's favor. He's generous to those who are in Christ from the time of their salvation on to forever and forever. Special grace. It's God's favor. It's God's goodness. His generosity to provide for those who are unworthy of that provision. Special grace starts at salvation, and we could talk a long time about this. We won't. I want to make the point here because it's going to take us back when God says my grace is sufficient. I want you to see what we're talking about. But I'm going to give you a few uh, scripture illustrations as is our habit because the Bible explains the Bible. Ephesians 2, 5 says this, and this is a great summary. Uh, it's summed up nicely for us, this type of special grace. Listen to it. When we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ. Everyone dead in their transgressions. That's how the Lord describes you before salvation. Dead. A corpse in your transgression and your sin. By grace you've been saved. Verse 6. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Did you know that's your view? Even though you're here on earth, you're redeemed, and your actual view is what? You're seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ. That's your reality, beloved. So that in the ages to come, mark it, he might show the surpassing riches of his what? He's going to save you, and he's going to put you in this marvelous seat in heaven so that forever people will understand his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. Special grace is there to show God's gracious kindness over the ages. That's appropriate, isn't it? Salvation is very personal most of the time, isn't it? We, we just think about, oh, he, you know, he's my Savior. He came into my heart. He does. You do realize that salvation is actually for God's glory, right? I mean, it, it does redeem you, and you get saved from your sin and from the guilt of your sin, and you're delivered to heaven, even though you don't deserve it, and all the things that come along with it. But God, salvation is for God's glory to show through all the ages how kind he is. And that's a good thing to remember. It's not just all personal. And so this grace is this special proactive force, isn't it? God applies it to the believer, and it gives them everything they need to save them and to keep them and to empower them, see, and deliver them and purify them and sanctify them and glorify them. That's so powerful and so wide-sweeping. And I'm, I'm, all saying, I'm saying this all the third person, to glorify them, sanctify them, deliver them. But it's so personal, isn't it? I mean, you can put yourself in there to keep me and empower me and deliver me and purify me and sanctify me and glorify me, right? Because it's applied to everyone who's repented and believed in God's provision of Christ for the atonement for our sins. Every person. Every single benefit in the Christian life now and every single benefit in eternity is by God's grace. Mark it, even grace for things we probably wouldn't choose on our own. And when we think about the Christian faith, if you just want to sum it up, you could probably sum it up in the word grace, could you? I don't think any word sets us apart from other religions of the world than grace. For, for all of them, every other religion 
has a component of salvation, some work of righteousness through some human achievement, religious or moral or the combination of both, in order to be acceptable to God. Every other religion in the world, some effort on your part to make sure you're acceptable to God. But all of our benefits come as a result of grace. Because if we understand anything at all about ourselves, we know that we deserve nothing. And yet God gives everything because of his goodness and according to his purposes. So as you think about the sufficient grace that Paul is assured of in the middle of intense difficulty, because that's where we are, right? It's so strong and it's so secure. Think about what John was carried about to say, and we've said this before around Christmas time. John says in John 1, 14, and the word became flesh, who's he talking about? Jesus. And dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is the only begotten of the Father. That makes sense, right? Because he is God incarnate, so we're going to see God's glory in Jesus. Now look what it says. What, what's one of the major attributes of God's glory? Mark it. What's the last part? Full of So when we got to see the incarnate Christ, part of God's glory was grace. Is that a surprise? God is a God that's gracious, full of grace, even to the unredeemed, common grace even, pours it out on people who don't even love him, who hate him, and then gives special grace at salvation to on to forever for those who are redeemed. It shouldn't surprise us that Jesus being God in flesh is full of grace because God's grace and Christ was full of grace, right? That makes sense. And when we confess Jesus as Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, what happens? Verse 16, for of his fullness we have all received. What is it? Grace upon grace. So when Christ is incarnate and he comes, we see God's glory and that's grace. And then when we come to faith, what happens? We receive grace upon grace. See? And then you get to Romans chapter 5 verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have obtained our introduction by faith. Now mark this. How is Christianity defined? Into this grace in which we stand. That's Christianity. That's how it's defined in that verse. Christianity is defined in standing in grace. Beloved, can I tell you, this is so important, I think, for uh, those of us who think that somehow we're constantly beating ourselves up because we don't conform. Listen, you live in flesh. You do know inside you're ready for glory. Outside you still have appetites, and this is an unredeemed body, and so you're struggling. And I throw my hat in the ring with everybody who struggles on a daily basis with sin and put to death the deeds of the flesh, and, and the Scripture deals with it all the time. Your position is you're redeemed. Practically, you're supposed to be holy, and that's a battle, isn't it? But can I tell you that it's defined, your, your relationship to God is defined in this grace in which we stand. And we exalt in the hope and the glory of God. So those of us who know God through faith in Christ Jesus are the recipients of, mark it, the outpouring of God's continual blessing and favor. We accumulate grace. We stand in grace. We have the riches of his grace, according to Ephesians. Romans chapter 5, verse 17. Again, for if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one. So who's that? That's Adam. Adam sinned, and you share in the sins of Adam. And we prove that every day, don't we? In case you think that's a little unreasonable to have be charged with Adam's sin, we prove that we are guilty of Adam's sin on a regular basis, right? But also remember that you also get credited with Christ's righteousness, don't you? When you come to faith, you get the credit of going to the cross without having to go. So you're, you're judged according to Adam, and by headship, you do sin, and so do I. But then when we come to faith, you get credited with Christ's righteousness, but you didn't have to go to the cross to get it. That's quite, that's quite, the, that's quite the overbalanced grace, isn't it? One man's sin came into the world, but Christ covered the sins of everybody. So that's, that's a big payment. And again, as we get that death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace. Who's that? That's describing Christianity again. If you come to faith, you've received what? An abundance of grace. And here it's separate from salvation, which is just also described this way. And of the gift of righteousness. What's a gift that you don't deserve? Grace. Stick with me, all right? Got more coffee out there if you need it. The gift that you don't deserve is grace, right? So if you have a gift of righteousness, that's Christianity. Again, a grace you didn't deserve, right? A gift you didn't deserve will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Grace is multiplied to us. How? First, Second Peter 1, 
2, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. How's it multiplied? In the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ. How do you come to the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ? Let the word dwell in you richly with all wisdom, right? Colossians chapter 3, verse 15. And we're going to see at the end of this letter, 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Beloved, can, could you wish for any more than that? Would you like somebody to say that to you? I mean, that's like the epitome of the best thing you can say to someone, isn't it? That's where every believer wants to be. Right in the middle of that, right? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, which you already know you're standing in it, and grace upon grace is multiplied to you, so that's true. And the love of God, which nothing can separate you from, Romans chapter 8, right? And the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And in the middle of difficult times, beloved, even of your own making, okay? Even because you disobeyed and the consequences of that disobedience is on you, or because the Lord's chastening you, or whatever other reason for the suffering, and wherever it comes from, James 4, 6 says he gives more grace. So you, not only do you stand in grace, you have grace multiplied upon, multiplied to you, and you have grace from salvation on into forever and forever. In the middle of difficult times, James chapter 4, verse 6 says he gives greater grace. So whatever you need, you have. And just from those few passages, do you get the sense that God isn't stingy with grace? I mean, we're like, we take a little dropper, like we give, you know, like this much grace, right? Sometimes we don't give grace at all, and we burn the bridge over we have to, what we have to cross, right? We use a dropper. What does God use? A shovel, right? A, a fire hydrant. It's, it's overwhelming, isn't it? Do you get the sense that there's some resource available? See? And when it comes to common grace, right, he, he pours it out on people. I mean, walk around in the world. Think about the people you know who are unredeemed and the blessings that's on them. Some very wealthy, right? Some very comfortable lives. They don't know Christ, and they have every possible human comfort around them. Common grace. Even to people who hate him. And then special grace for salvation and sanctification and the gifts that we're given, to, we're supposed to use in the church. All that's part of his grace, right? Grace for service, grace for living, grace for when we're struggling, even more grace, and certainly grace for suffering and difficulty. The resources are more than sufficient. They are abundant. God overflows his goodness, as we sing about this morning, right? I will sing of the goodness of God. All my life you've been faithful. You know, we've said this before. What if you only had tomorrow? What you thank the Lord for today? How much would you have? His overflowing goodness all around us. God overflows in acts of kindness. God overflows in his generosity. It's God's nature to be gracious. You know, and I would just encourage you, say thank you in your heart to God right now. You don't have to say it out loud. It's his nature to be gracious. It's overflowing, his acts of kindness. His generosity towards you is overflowing. Give him thanks for that. That's true worship. Did you know that? doesn't have anything to do with situations you're in, atmosphere, how you feel, right? It has to do with thankfulness, the right position of a recipient of God's grace. We'd have nothing apart from him. See, that's the heart of a worshiper, spirit and truth. It's the same gracious God incarnated himself in Jesus who is full of grace. He takes up residence in our lives and pours out his grace on us, grace upon grace. And what can he accomplish with it? Remember 2 Corinthians 9, 8? Remember this? God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything you may have an abundance for every good deed. Beloved, here's the question. How comprehensive is this grace that is your reality if you've come to faith in Christ? All grace abounding, all sufficiency in everything and abundance for every good deed. And how does that passage start? What's the first four words? God is able. Do you believe that? It's just a very simple statement. It's easy to just skip right over that, right? He's powerful enough. That's what that means. He's strong enough. He's smart enough. He's capable enough. He has the knowledge that's needed and the wisdom to apply it. That's what it means. God is able to make all grace abound to you. He's able. So, 
now that we have that foundation. And we could have spent weeks just on that. And I think you understand that. Let's go back to where Paul is. What's he in the middle of? A continuous beating coming from the spirit realm. And the Lord has allowed that to happen. And Paul says, concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And what did God say? Did the God of all grace say, okay, Paul, third time's a charm. I'll let you out. Right? On the third time, you got it. Right? That's how many numbers I was looking for. He could have, though, right? He has the power to relieve Paul's difficulty, doesn't he? He's able. He could heal you right now. He could fix your financial problem. He could fix your, your uh, relationship problem, whatever it is. Health issue, it doesn't matter, right? He has the power. It's not outside of his, his grasp. He has the power to relieve Paul of that difficulty. He has the power to take away your hardship. But in this case, what did he say to Paul? Look at verse 9. He said to me, my grace is what? Sufficient. So he's not going to take it, is he? He's not going to take it. And can I ask you this question from what you know about grace now? Is it? Is it sufficient? I, I don't think we could come away with any other option, can we? We barely even scratched the surface of 153 times in the New Testament. But he says to Paul, I'm not going to take it away from you, Paul. You're going to struggle with this, and he likely struggled with this his entire life. But I will give you grace to get through it. And not only that, for power is perfected in weakness. I'm going to keep you pinned, if you will, by this difficulty, the stake, and that's where you're going to figure out that you have true power. And after Paul asked the questions and made the appeal for relief and, and no doubt struggled with the reality of what his life was going to look like, because he wasn't going to be delivered, his life was going to be this way all the way through, see? What did he do? Well, I mean, we can only come down on this side, right? He must have trusted God's judgment. He trusted God's purposes. He trusted God's plan in all of this. He trusted God's love for him. He trusted that God knew him better, mark it, than he knew himself, and thus he knew what was best for him, right? He has the knowledge and the wisdom to apply it, doesn't he? And I don't think we can argue, you know, I don't think you're just going to disagree with that. God has the ability to understand us better than we know ourselves and what we need to go through, so he's going to bring us through it, and maybe he won't deliver us from it, and maybe he'll give us grace to get through it and to be strengthened in the middle of hardship, see? And we can certainly say that for all the types of trouble that come our way, right? Whether it's from our own making, whether it's from our own body that's broken down, whether it's chasing that comes, whether it's from a, 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 a world that's broken and, and stuff comes as trouble from that, right? Or, or God's, God's uh, chastening us because of, of what we're doing or it's for his own glory or, or any of those things we talked about. I think we could say the same thing, can't we? Grace is sufficient and that we can learn what we need to learn and God knows us better than we know ourselves. And so the difficulty, like all human types of difficulty through God's grace, resulted in, mark this, Paul's sanctification. And that's part of the grace, isn't it? Grace from salvation through sanctification, through glorification, now and forever and ever. Piled up. And that's the perfecting grace of God. He's not content that we stay where we are. Now look at verse 10, okay, and, and we're going to close. So 2 Corinthians 12.10, God has just said in verse 9, I'm not going to fix it, and I'm going to give you grace to get through it, and it's sufficient, and we know it is, because the resource is infinite. And then he says, and power is going to be perfected in weakness, Paul. You're going to be really powerful because you're not arrogant, and you know it's my power working through you. And then verse 10, what's Paul say to that? Okay, I guess I'll have to put up with being weak. And I'll try to ignore the, the uh, insults. And, you know, I deserve better than that, though. I mean, I just want to say that. And, and, I, and I hope the persecutions aren't too bad because that's not what I signed up for. When I signed up for Christianity, I didn't sign up for being persecuted, okay? Christianity is a pad I sit on, and it pads my life, and it makes it comfortable. And, you know, I don't like it. My life is not cushy as the false teachers, but I guess I'll survive. Is that what he says? No. He says, therefore, I'm well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, and difficulties for Christ's sake, for when I'm weak, then I'm strong. 
wow. Try to mouth those words in the middle of hardship, beloved. That's what he wants us to do, though, isn't it? Because that's where the satisfaction is. That's where the power is. That's where the hope is, right? I was reminded as I went through that last verse, and we're going to close here in just a minute. C.S. Lewis had a, a great illustration for this from his own life. And I love how he just gave little, he gives little, as you read his books, he just gives little snippets of his childhood and his adulthood. But he says this, he said, um, quote, he goes, when I was a child, I often had a toothache. And I knew that if I went to my mother, she'd give me something which would deaden the pain for that night and let me go to sleep. But I didn't go to my mother, at least not until the pain became very bad. And the reason I didn't go was this. I did not doubt she'd give me some aspirin, but I knew she'd also do something else. I knew she would take me to the dentist the next morning. And I couldn't get what I wanted out of her without getting something more which I didn't want. I wanted immediate relief from my pain, he says, but I could not get it without having my teeth set permanently right. And I knew those dentists, he says, you know, they're going to start fiddling around with other teeth that I don't even feel yet. They want to do all that fixing on all of that stuff, right? And our Lord, he says, is like a dentist. And I think it's a great illustration. Dozens of people go to him to be cured of some particular thing. And he'll certainly cure it. But he won't stop there. That may be all you asked for, but once you call him in, he's going to give you the full treatment. Paul's getting the full treatment. Maybe you are. Maybe you will. You certainly will. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. And you're not going to be complete without difficulty, right? In fact, that's precisely what Romans 5 says. God redeemed Paul. God trained him. Even brought him to heaven for a short time. And then sent him out. And he started that process, and he continued through the full treatment. We're going to stop here, but I just want you to see just the first couple of words of verse 10, because it's going it's to give you a little foreshadowing of what we're going to look at. Paul says, therefore, I am well content. Well content is the verb go to keo. Go is well, and to keo is, mark this, to think. In other words, beloved, he's not taking pleasure in the pain, okay? Nobody takes pleasure in the pain. Nobody enjoys being having a difficult time financially. Nobody enjoys being persecuted by people. Nobody enjoys any of that, right? What's he doing? He's just thinking rightly about it, isn't he? And isn't that the key? About whatever difficulty you're in? He's already won the battle of the mind, hasn't he? He's gotten over the, you know, the feelings and the sense of what I deserve and the why me's and the blaming somebody or blaming something for your trouble, right? He's thinking rightly about it. doesn't mean that what somebody's doing or the situation that you're in is good from a human perspective. It may be a difficult time that you're in. We're not minimizing any of that. He's just thinking rightly about it. And if you think about Paul, he's been buffeting by, buffeted by a demon, constantly beat by a demon, to keep him in subjection. That doesn't sound fun at all. And yet, he's determined to win the battle in the mind, so he says, I am thinking about this correctly. I'm well content with this because this is what the Lord has for me, see? And I'm going to learn what I'm supposed to learn. And he's looking through all of that, and he's seeing God's purposes and seeing the real source of the problem, and he's seeing the difficult people in different eyes, isn't he? People will still be judged for giving you a hard time. You know, the Lord knows how to reserve the ungodly who give you a hard time for judgment. He knows how to do that, doesn't he? If he preserved angels for judgment for the future, 1 Thessalonians says he knows how to preserve the ungodly for judgment. When they're bringing difficult times on you, you don't ever have to worry that it's going to be unjust all the way through. God sets it all right, doesn't he? He gives all the correct names back to the correct people to quote C.S. Lewis, right? And all the right positions and all the right authority and all the right honor gets put back where I get sued. Right now, it's not there. But he looks through all of that. He sees God's purposes. He sees the real source of all that. And it's the grace of God. Here it is. Not content to leave Paul where he is, but intent to bring him completeness, lacking nothing. And you see, Paul asked the Lord three times to be delivered. So it wasn't even like one time, okay, 
I mean, it probably would have been like 37 times for me, right? Because I think on the 38th, that's the one that's going to be it, right? The Lord's going to hear me, and now I'll be delivered. And you can even see Paul saying, you know, I know you gave me this to keep me from being haughty and to keep me humble, but couldn't we wait till I was actually haughty before you did it? Right? Just see if I do okay. I mean, I don't need it right now, right? I mean, you can see all these kinds of reasoning, but you get to the third time, he's like, the Lord answers, my grace is sufficient for you. Is the Lord going to answer you audibly? Probably not, but he already has given you his word, hasn't he? And we know exactly why he's allowing those things to happen. So you can think rightly about it. Not content to leave Paul where he is, and I think we would all put Paul on this pedestal way above us. I would. And yet, Paul wouldn't do that, and he wasn't, the Lord wasn't content where Paul was. He was still bringing him along. He's getting the full treatment, right? And Paul knows that God's grace is the bulwark he can trust in. Do you know that? So you're going to have to come back next week. Lord willing, we're going to think correctly about some of the things you may have been complaining about this week, okay? That's the application. Because when you're really at the bottom, you know, and we, we, we tend to over, overestimate our difficulty, I think, because it's hard for us. But when you're really at the bottom, like Paul was, and you can't seem to do anything about it, so the problem is there permanently, that's the place to ask the question, did Paul find sufficient grace for his trouble? Was God's grace sufficient for the most difficult troubles of his life? Because I think most of us would say, all kidding aside, rightfully so, if we're going to address really tough things, see, things that may not have an end, difficulties that may not end tomorrow, they might not end throughout the course of your life, maybe hardship you're going to have to deal with constantly and struggle and deep pain and sorrow and disappointment and fear, see, those are deep things. We don't want to give shallow answers. That's the problem with a lot of Christianity anymore. They can't even give an answer for suffering, let alone an answer that helps people who are believers face it like the Lord would want them to face it, right? So we can't give shallow answers, and I think that that's important. And the Word of God does not give shallow answers. It gives us real, substantive answers where we can say, okay, I can look at this and think about this rightly. That's where we're going to go. Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. Lord, we thank you today for a great time together. Thank you for an opportunity to be in song around your greatness and your majesty and to be in prayer and submitting ourselves in the correct way before you and to give as an act of worship that everything we have belongs to you and then to be in your word and recognize its authority in our life. It's not grand suggestions for us maybe if we'd like to but your commands are for us not for you and so you give it to us and you don't want us to respond back okay i want to be like that lord make me like that instead it's here's my word to you child and here's my holy spirit who dwells in you now volitionally act on this so father i pray that as we see these things from your word it should just uh, strike away any distraction i may have caused but let let uh, our folks know your own will and your purposes in all of this, that they might think rightly. And thank you that we can be a church that grows in this way, in grace and knowledge of Jesus. Thank you that we stand in grace, that us be encouraged that even in the midst of difficulty and failure, that gives more grace, we can give more to help us through. Thank you for encouraging our hearts today from your word, and we thank you for all of our time together. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said.